Our text this night comes tonight comes from the end of First Thessalonians. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 5. Our catechism lesson is number 38 in the shorter catechism. That's on page 872, the back of the red. We can read that answer together. First Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Hear God's holy word. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Question 38, Shorter Catechism. We've considered the benefits of this life on earth in Christ. We've considered the benefits that uh, those who die in Christ receive at their death and now at the last day. So question 38, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. It was Friday afternoon and I had kind of a double lesson and tried to uh, think about the sermon texts during the week and it's it always is striking how often as I'm chewing on these things that God puts things in my life uh, that, that kind of illustrate the point in many ways. So I had missed a bunch of calls from Comcast. I wasn't worried about that, uh, that fact, by the way. But for some reason, they had been calling me last week and calling every day. And they're my, uh, my internet provider. So Friday, I'm in my office. And finally, I'm, I'm around my phone when it's ringing. So I answer it. And uh, they say, we're really worried. Uh, I answer the phone and somebody says, hello, you're a valued customer. We're really worried about you. I said, okay, uh, what's the problem? And, and they said, well, you know, you pay for a certain amount of, uh, of data on your internet plan. And, and we're just really worried that uh, one day you're going to go over that. So we think we can kick you up to the next tier and you won't have to worry about it. I said, okay, well, that's kind of nice. Could you kind of fill me in on kind of some of the details here and, uh, you know, trying to work through. It turns out uh, what I pay for, I pay for about 1,200 somethings. I don't even know what we're talking about. I think gigabytes is the right, is the right thing. And in all of my time as a customer, I had yet to go over 300. 
So I've never crested the 300 mark. Pay for 1,200. They're really worried about me. So I said, uh, uh, just listen. Um, I would like you to stop worrying about me. I think I'll be fine. And if I ever, if I ever get close to a thousand, you give me a call, okay? And he said, okay, okay, that's fine. You know, just, just doing my job, sir. I said, I oh, know that's fine, that's fine. But you know, uh, I got to thinking about worrying, and of course, in my heart, I'm thinking, all right, uh, I'm a, a, maybe a little bit offended that I've received this call, but uh, of course, Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to to do good to all people, to be filled with love for everyone, and so I'm sort of being tested that way. And you know, I said, you know, I should have said that he shouldn't worry about me because in Christ, on the last day. I will be raised and taken up to glory in the full enjoyment of God. And then he would have gotten way more than he bargained for on that sales call. But, you know, you think about worrying in life. And um, those who know Christ, the joy that they have in being assured of this doctrine. What will happen at the last day? And, and, and you see that refrain, what, what can man do to us. If you know Christ and you are assured of the life that you have in him, what, what joy should fill your heart? What, what assurance that, yes, this life is filled with so many trials, uh, so many difficult things, so, so much unknown. We don't know what a day is going to bring our way. And, you know, I even hesitate to mention that because all of us struggle with those thoughts day by day. And we don't want to let fear or worry grip us. Uh, but uh, the uncertainty of life is something that, uh, that can certainly uh, grip your heart and take control of the way that you think. But we are to have this truth of the resurrection. We are to have this, this truth of eternity and eternal life there at the front of our minds all of the time, every day. And to even think about the last judgment, there, there are, there's a solemnity that we are to have when we think about it, uh, along with the joy. But the assurance that we have is it's the grace of God that's going to get us to that day. Just like we think about our daily life in our struggle against sin, it's, it's not going to be our own strength that, uh, by which we will one day stand before our God, by which we will stand before Christ. It's strength of God's grace that's going to get us there. He's going to preserve us by his grace. And since that is true, the last judgment, which will not be a shirking of justice, it will be a display of justice, both because of Christ and because of what God does to his people in Christ. Because of that, it will be to the glory of God's grace on the last day, at the last judgment. God will be glorified in his grace and he keeps us by his grace and there are many things we have to understand the way that the, that the scriptures and particularly the new testament talks about this day of judgment because most of the time there's some mention that's being made about the the legitimacy of a, of a life lived in christ that uh, there will be some acknowledgement of our obedience, our good works that is acknowledged on that day. And, of course, that can't mean that we are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. So how do we put these things together? Well, as we see, it, it all comes down to the glory of God's grace. Because all that he produces in us 
is by the strength of his grace. So first, the first idea tonight is the, the keeping of grace. The keeping of grace. And what we mean by that is that grace keeps us. God has promised that he sanctifies the whole man. He sanctifies us through and through. This last benediction in 1 Thessalonians, there's a lot of emphasis on God who is doing the action. This is a, a benediction or blessing being spoken that speaks of God's action to us. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. That's why we end worship services with a benediction to remind ourselves of God's abiding presence and God's action in our lives. There is a, a blessing here, a promise that God will sanctify you through and through other translations will say completely or perfectly holy the word sanctify means to be made holy to be set apart to be consecrated for service in this context it is the action of God to make all of us all that we are all of ourselves work together in his service that we would have a unity of our person that is united in the service of to God. We are to be set apart from the flesh to serve the living God, from the world of, of sin. The emphasis, of course, it, as we said, is on God's action. May God do this to you. May he continually do this to you, not he has done this already. There's a sense in which in Christ, we have already been sanctified. We have already been consecrated. We have, we have already been set apart. And certainly our, our position in Christ is sure for those who are believers, for those who believe in Christ. But most often when we speak of the, the word sanctification, which is a big word, but what that means is the, the ongoing process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Justification is that, that beginning moment of someone's faith and they are forgiven of their sins and declared righteous as in a, a courtroom scene. The sanctification is that ongoing process of God conforming us to Christ's image. It flows out of being united to Christ, out of being in Christ, out of being a forgiven sinner. This uh, notion of being sanctified completely or through and through, thankfully, is uh, explained right as Paul continues. He's not saying, as we mentioned this morning, right, it's not a, a Christian or biblical teaching to think that at any point in this life we will be free from sin. We will never be fully free from sin. We will struggle against our flesh our, uh, our entire life. But what it means is that God will unite us in some way into varying degrees, but he will unite uh, our persons in service to God. And by that we mean the person and, it, and his various faculties. So the mind, the affections, and the will or the outward uh, actions uh, of the, that we do in our lives. We see this in the way that Paul speaks of the spirit and the soul and the body. May your spirit and soul and body be kept and be made blameless at the day of Christ. What is the difference there between the, the spirit and the soul? That seems like a, a, a weird thing to distinguish, to say that we have spirits and souls, because we would generally use those interchangeably. Well, here, uh, this is the distinction between the understanding, the mind, the spirit is the mind, and the soul is the affections. 
So what Paul is saying here is that our understanding, what we know, our hearts, what we love, and our wills, what we choose to do, are going to be united in the service of God by God's grace. He is going to do this work in all true believers. A great verse to commit to memory that, that speaks about this very thing <clears throat> Excuse me, is from Psalm 86. It says this, Teach me your way, O Lord. Many of us know this verse. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So there you have in a very concise way those three faculties. The mind, the affections, and the will. Teach me your way, O Lord. Make me understand it. I want to know what it means to walk in your ways. I need to know it up here and understand it. Teach me your way that I may walk in your truth, that I may live... According to your law, to your commandments, to that which you say to do, unite my heart to fear your name. May I love you. Not only will I know and understand certain things, not only will I live in a certain way, but my heart will be united to fear your name. We need all three of these things in order to serve God. And all three, speaking uh, living spiritually, we need God's grace. If you are very passionate about learning a sport or learning an instrument, there's a sense in which all three of those things sort of coalesce. You need to understand something. You need to have the underlying passion to sort of fuel your practice or your pursuit of that thing, and it needs to manifest itself outwardly. There's a way in which you can see that in many different things that we learn or take up in this life. But when we're speaking spiritually, it all will happen by the grace of God. It comes from the strength of God's grace. And we need to keep that in mind every time we come to a positive command in the scriptures about our fight and battle against sin. We are called to, to live in a way that puts the deeds of the flesh, the old man, to death and puts on the new man. And we are commanded to do that. So Romans chapter 8 says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that the command there is for you to put to death the deeds of the body, but it is by the Spirit. You're doing it, but it is in the strength of another. Colossians, the book of Colossians says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You, put it to death, kill it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On, a, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You put these things to death. But how? Well, it's by the grace of God, as we mentioned. Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So often we think about the grace of God as uh, cleansing us of our sins. And certainly that is a central part of what God's grace does for us. But here the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, uh, we day by day live and breathe God's grace. It is not just that grace saves us and then kind of exits the picture and we try to live according to our own strength. Grace has an abiding presence with us. God is pouring out his grace upon his people. And that is why we can speak of the covenant of grace. Because a covenant is a a vital, ongoing relationship with our God. There's There's a communion that we have with God. And that covenant is filled, it overflows with God's grace. In the Garden of Eden, it was the covenant of works that Adam's arrangement was to be obedient and so long as he remained obedient he was in a right standing with God the covenant of grace is that we are forgiven and that God looks upon us with kindness with love with compassion as his people whom he has saved and grace overflows in that covenant relationship We live and breathe off of grace, and by grace we're forgiven. By grace we are built up and trained to live uh, according to God's ways. It keeps us. What is the effect of God's grace? How does this doctrine, the first of the keeping of God's grace, second the effect of God's grace, how does this truth, that grace has this abiding presence with us and that it trains us. We are sanctified by God's grace and as God's grace is given to us, we are then strengthened to put to death the deeds of the body. How does this connect to the doctrine of the resurrection? How does it connect to eternity? How does it connect to the last judgment? The catechism answer that we've considered tonight or we're considering tonight speaks of what will happen when Christ comes to judge the world at the last day. And uh, it's, it's probably unavoidable to, to wonder at times what that day will be like. We often worry uh, to, to what degree our own lives will be evaluated. We understand that we are far from perfect. And nobody likes to be scrutinized in any way. To go in for uh, work performance, job performance evaluations is something that most people dread. So we worry to what degree our own lives will be evaluated on that last day. Well, there are things that should um, cause us to think about these things with great seriousness and solemnity. And there should be cause to take great comfort in certain truths as well. And the first is, is a point of comfort. The last day, Christ will be our advocate. Christ will be our advocate. Those who have trusted in him. Those who have looked to him, those who have rested in him, those who have not trusted in their own righteousness, but have looked to the Savior, Christ will be their advocate. Thomas Watson says this, At that day Christ the judge will own them by name. Those whom the world scorned and looked upon as madmen and fools, Christ will take by the hand and openly acknowledge to be his favorites. What is his confessing of men but his openly acknowledging to them to be precious in his eyes? 
Christ as judge will plead for them. It is not usual to be both judge and advocate, to sit on the bench and plead, but it shall shall be so at the day of judgment. The great comfort that we have is that the one who is rendering judgment upon all people is the same one who is now interceding for those who trust in him. We ought to take great comfort in that. And we take great comfort that Christ is not going to to, to change his or exit the offices that he has occupied since the cross and the resurrection. So there will be mercy, there will be grace, there will be forgiveness that is magnified and shown and manifested at the last day. So, So Watson goes on to say, Christ will plead his own blood for the saints. These persons I have purchased, they are the travail of my soul. They have sinned, but my soul was made an offering for their sin. Why did Christ die? So that he might, Ephesians 5, 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Our hope is that work of Calvary, that cleanses us and purifies us that Christ might present the church to himself, Ephesians 5, perhaps even an allusion to the last day. Uh, Because of this, we are to live the way that Paul speaks in Philippians 3. He says, there's many things that you may trust in in the world. Many temptations to say, well, I've placed my trust in this or in that. Paul says, everything that you might consider advantageous to you, whatever you think might be something that you might bring to God in your hands, it is all rubbish. Throw it away and labor to be found in Jesus Christ. Above all things, run to Christ and remain in him and trust in him. You are to live that way, knowing that to be in Christ is your ultimate and final hope for salvation. It causes us to say, as we consider the last day, what will be our comfort? Our comfort will be being found in Christ. And so we live our lives trusting in Him, believing the gospel, not abandoning the faith, always trusting in our Savior. We should be like Paul. To say whatever we might be tempted to think would be a shred of our own righteousness, throw it away. Don't trust in it. Believe the promises of the gospel. Run to Christ and be found in Him. Always. At the same time, the reality of our faith and life will be acknowledged. As we see this idea of blamelessness, which seems to speak of not just the fact that we are forgiven by faith, but that there has been a reality of a life lived that has been produced in believers. As we live in faith, this means the continuing work of the grace of God, as we have been mentioning. So Philippians 1 verse 9 says this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's unpack that a little bit. Paul prays for the Philippians and he prays that they may be increasing in love and knowledge so that they may look upon and approve the things that are excellent so that there would be a purity and a blamelessness that accompanies them for the day of Christ. And then he alludes too also to the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit of righteousness. There's allusion there certainly to the life that is lived in Christ. It comes by being united to Jesus Christ. There is a, a reality there. As you believe in Christ, as you believe the gospel, God is working his grace in you. And what does it produce? It, produce, it produces fruit. All of those who are justified will be sanctified. We need to understand how those are distinct, but how they are inseparably connected. Once again, we'll return once more to Thomas Watson. He says this, Christ, speaking of the last judgment, Christ will mention before men and angels all the good deeds the saints have done. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You that have wept in secret for sin, that have shown any love for Christ's name, that have been rich in good works, Christ will take notice of it at the last day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. He himself will be the herald to proclaim your praises. Thus it shall be done to the man whom Christ delights to honor. Acknowledged and acquitted. There is some acknowledgement of the life lived. There is a exaltation of God's mercy and grace in Christ. And it will come down to those who have wept for their sin. Who have trusted in Christ. Who have sought to live in a way which magnifies the glory of Christ. But both of these things, both of the, the mercy and grace that is shed upon believers. And an acknowledging of a reality of faith and life will be understood by all as a work of God's grace. We'll look at all of this, and and as we see in the scriptures, that Christ acknowledges the reality of a life lived for believers on earth, that they were not fake. They were certainly not perfect, but there was a richness in good works. There was a zeal, a desire to honor God. But everyone who's assembled on that day will understand that this was because of God's grace. It wasn't because of our strength. It wasn't because of our ability. It was God working these things in us for his glory. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 24, says this. Do our good works earn nothing? even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? It says this, The reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. Later on, the the catechism says, By his grace, he crowns his gifts. It will be understood that day that as God's people, as everything is set before everyone, who has ever lived, that as it becomes clear that God's people lived in a distinct way, that they lived differently, what everyone will understand is this was the work of God's grace. 
And that's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5. The blessing and the benediction. May, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Because without God doing that, building you up in spirit and soul and body, it will not happen. And so as we look at our own Christian life, considering the last day, we look at it and understand that we need to have continual reliance upon the God of peace. Every day is an exercise in humility to rid ourselves of self-reliance and to look upon the God who works all of these things in us. Then as we close, we see the effect of God's grace, the keeping of God's grace, the effect of God's grace, and the glory of God's grace. What should we rest in? Will we rest in the surety of what God will do? Verse 24 says this, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Verse 24, just a very simple affirmation that Paul says, may God do this to you. May he sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body. Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He's faithful. He will do it. He's faithful. He will do it. Trust in the faithfulness of God. As your, perhaps your faith or your life or your zeal for obedience as it wanes or waxes from day to day, trust in the faithfulness of God. He will surely do it. Certainly connection there to the thought in Philippians 1. He who began that good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Trust in the faithfulness of God. Secondly, think solemnly about the day of judgment. Think solemnly about the day of judgment. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy, the salvation of the elect and of his justice, and the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments, and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We should always, we should take time to think about, those are difficult realities, and no, no one revels in them. We read even in the book of Jeremiah that God does not delight in the judgment of the wicked, but yet he is just. We remind ourselves of, of the judgment day. There will be some that go to everlasting life. There will be some that go to everlasting condemnation. We should be filled with thankfulness that we know the gospel and we know Christ. We should be uh, reminded to stay diligent and to not lose our zeal for the faith and for our God. And we should be reminded to be filled with prayer and concern for those who do not know Christ. To be reminded, as we thought this morning, that we were once enemies. And those who are now enemies of God, perhaps one day, through Christ, they will be friends. We must think solemnly about this day in our own, relative to our own lives. As, as Christ, the confession goes on, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful, 
because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. And clearly there is reason for that, that we would shake off all carnal security, that we would always be working to be found ready. As 1 John says, we would not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We don't know when that day will be. So we think solemnly about that. But we also are meant to eagerly await this day. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes what happens as Christ comes. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another that Christ will come, the sound of a trumpet, that he will descend from heaven, that that those who are uh, left on the earth, who are in Christ, will rise to meet him, that they, uh, the resurrected bodies will come out of the graves, those who have died, and so God's people will always be together. That is a, quite an incredible thing to say, and then for Paul to say, encourage one another with this reality. Why should we be encouraged? Why should we encourage one another uh, be, with these words? Because this is the occasion of being made perfect in the full enjoyment of God. There is something that is laid up for us that goes far beyond what we could imagine. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We remind ourselves that we were made to enjoy God forever, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We will be satisfied when we look upon our Savior, when we behold the glory of God, and we will be fit to do that for all eternity. So there's an eager awaiting of that day. It will be far greater than anything we experience in this world and in this life. And then finally, that should propel us to be filled with a desire to commune with God now. We will commune with God for eternity. We should be filled with the desire to commune with God now. Gerhardus Voss says this, To be a Christian is to live one's life not merely in obedience to God, nor merely in dependence on God, nor merely for the sake of God. It is to stand in conscious, reciprocal fellowship with God. To be identified with him in thought and purpose and work. To receive from him and to give back to him in ceaseless interplay of spiritual forces. Commune with God. We're given the opportunity to do that now. We will be doing that for all eternity. We can do that now, being joined to him in covenant and by his grace, given the spirit, given the gifts of his word and his prayer we can, we can live our life not merely in obedience, not merely in dependence, not merely for the sake of God, but to have that conscious reciprocal fellowship with God, which is to live in a heavenly way because it is a taste of heaven. It is a taste of eternity and what, will we, what we will be doing uh, forever and ever. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. May you impress upon us the importance of doing uh, all of these things, of thinking about the day of judgment, of understanding the way that your grace will get us there. We pray that we are to eagerly, uh, that you would allow us to eagerly await that day as well. And we give you all of the glory uh, because we know that at the last day it will be understood by all that it is your grace that changed us, that saved us, that renewed us, that conformed us to the image of Christ. And it will all be to your praise and honor and glory. So may we live to your praise and honor and glory even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.